Welcome to episode six of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast that discusses and examines the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016, which is coming up on us pretty quickly here. We are nearing the end of the list. Yes, we're down to the last half dozen stories on this list. And it's been like, it's been, it's been an exciting read every week. We have so much awesome stuff at the top of this list. Oh yeah. There's so many of these lately where we just say, yeah, this is here for a reason. And we know <laughs> clearly what it is. Happily, we have one of those tonight. Yes. Now, those listening at home probably know him by his voice now. He's been on the show so many times. We are joined once again by Mr. John M. Wilson. Welcome back, John. Yay! And tonight we have a story that is that is both amazing and hugely important, not only to the X-Men franchise, but I would say probably to comic book storytelling in general. Oh, yes. Yeah, this is one of the first major alternate timeline stories. This is X-Men Days of Future Past, published originally in X-Men issue 141 and Uncanny X-Men issue 142. Yeah, the, the series had had Uncanny on the cover for a while, but they had not actually adapted that into the Indicia, which many, including myself, think of as the official name of the book uh, until issue 142. Yeah, yeah, it actually is the, the legal name of the book in a lot of ways. So, so that's why a lot of people go by the Indicia. It gets a little bit problematic at times because you'll have issues of like, oh, I don't know, Marvel Team-Up that are Marvel Team-Up featuring Spider-Man and the Dazzler, number 182. And it's not that the whole series is called Marvel Team-Up featuring Spider-Man and the Dazzler, but that particular issue is officially legal enti legally entitled Marvel Team-Up featuring Spider-Man and the Dazzler. Yeah. That's okay. I'm also kind of a stickler for articles in my comic book titles. And this book had started out as The X-Men back in its original run, which I had kept until the book was canceled. I have no idea what it was called during the reprint years. But when it came back as 94, it was just X-Men in the Indicia. And it was X-Men until issue 139, when it became The X-Men. And now with issue 142, it is The Uncanny X-Men. So, for what that's worth. Yeah, there's a few changes here. Some changes in the creative teams as well. This is one of the last issues that's co-plotted by Chris Claremont and John Byrne, with script by Chris Claremont and pencils by John Byrne, inked by Terry Austin, colored by Glynis Ween, lettered by Tom Orzachowski, edited by Louise Jones, with editor-in-chief Jim Shooter overseeing it, cover dates January and February of 1981, release dates of October 14th and November 18th, 1980. And as we've already said, it is number six in the countdown. So this is actually 143 was the final issue of John Byrne's contributions to Uncanny X-Men with Chris Claremont scripting. And it it, it feels odd because I've been actually I've read this as a part of an X-Men read through attempt that I'm that I'm doing to, to coincide with a couple of other podcasts that are out there, which, you know, might as well toot some people's horns. Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is a fantastic survey course on X-Men narrative history and then also the podcast that goes snicked is a wolverine focused podcast which does um mostly new wolverine stories but also they do occasional flashback episodes where they'll take a portion of the x-men's history and talk through it but kind of focusing on wolverine's role in it and it's also worth listening to so i've been listening to those and reading through x-men and uh john byrne just feels like 
he is the X-Men. And so tomorrow, when I read 143 and, and go on after that, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with no more John Byrne in my life. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sure you'll find a way. It's th- There's some good stuff coming beyond that. But if you were to ask me to pick the two seminal X-Men stories throughout the history of the titles, I would pick this one and the one that John and I will be discussing next week. But yeah. we'll keep that one under wraps until later. Okay, okay, okay. We can do that. These these are quintessential X-Men. If you if you want to know anything about X-Men history and 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 what's important kind of important things have been done with them, you basically have to start here. And happily there was a movie about this one recently, which I which I rather enjoyed. Yes, the the Days of Future Past film took the basic premise, although they did do some shifting and changing around. I might as well get into that as we do the synopsis. So quick synopsis of issue 141. It starts off in the far future of 2013 <laughs> with an adult Kate pride uh, going through controlled zones of just a destroyed city. After Kate is, you know, going through this town, she drops down into a little underground portion. She's unable to use her powers because of an inhibitor collar. Wolverine shows up with some graying at the temples, but his internal thought process reveals that he has his claws, but using them would draw the attention of the Sentinels. So that's how we learn that the Sentinels are back in the game. And Sentinels is occasionally misspelled in this with an A-L instead of an E-L. But that's okay. We'll, we'll forgive them. We continue on. We find out that people are labeled M for mutant, A for anomalous, H for human. And there are essentially concentration camps, and a lot of people have died. Not just mutants, but those who stood next to the mutants. So we see gravestones. Uh, Johnny Storm, Ben Grimm. There's a partial one that I can't read, but we do see Susan Richards and Charles Xavier and Lorna Dane. Uh, in the foreground, we see Kurt Wagner, which in, you know, tr- usual subtly visual storytelling from Claremont and Byrne, the fact that that's important is not brought to your attention. But Katie's relationship with Kurt Wagner is a thread of this story. So the fact that he's dead now and her reaction when she meets him later is, is kind of important. It is. Yeah, we see yeah Bobby Drake. We see Hank McCoy. There's someone H. Mick. So it's very clear that a lot of these people have died. This future Kate is married to Colossus. Magneto is on their side, and this is the first time we see Magneto as an ally, which makes sense when we cover his history related to the concentration camps, what that all means. Yeah, he's been there, and he's on their side. Yeah, this is before... I mean, they're just starting to gray up his character in X-Men storytelling, because, you know, in a lot of X-Men's history, both in the X-Men history and in the the intervening years where there were no X-Men, Magneto is just your cackling villain type. And this is one of the first steps towards graying him up a bit, which you, we, you've already talked about that some probably a lot in the God Loves Man Kills episode, but that's another major place where he becomes a more sympathetic character. He does, yeah. And he's it, it is interesting. This is, as you said, it's one of the first places we see that on the page. But at this point, I don't even think we, we know he's a Nazi concentration camp survivor. I, I could be mistaken, but I don't think that's revealed for about 10 issues or so. I think you are correct that maybe something that Claremont already has in mind, or maybe he's in, he inspires himself to do from this issue. But, but yeah, I don't think we've seen that because. Yeah, I don't think that's confirmed and established until issue 150. Right. And the encounters between him and the X-Men, even under Claremont's pen up to this point, have still been very antagonistic and not getting a whole lot of room for, you know, to see Magneto's inner brain workings. So we don't really know him very well yet. He's become a slightly less of a mustache-twirling, cackling villain. 
He is, yeah. So, I mean, reading this in the original publication order, if you have no knowledge of what's coming, that moment would be a one heck of a shock, mm -hmm. which is probably part of what has cemented it in memories for so long. Cut from there to the quote-unquote present-day X-Men, as they are training in the danger room. Wolverine, now in his brown and tan suit, Sprite walks in, and we actually get treated to seeing Sprite, a.k.a. Shadowcat, a.k.a. Kitty Pride's first danger room session, which I found very enjoyable. Professor X has lined up a series of tasks that are designed to challenge her her first time through. She's nervous, so she just closes her eyes and walks and phases through the entire room, <laughs> and nothing touches her. <laughs> and the X-Men are up in the control room, and they're just ro literally rolling on the floor laughing uh, because, you know, Kitty Pride was so nervous, and they were so nervous for her because it's her first time in the danger room, and she just walked right through. Oh, yeah. But then after that, she collapses, and we know what's going on. Rachel Summers, a possible future child of Cyclops and Jean Grey. That's not revealed yet, just to say. Yeah. Like, all we know is this, this redheaded girl named Rachel has um, sent Kitty Pride's mind back in time. Yeah. Yeah, she's more Mrs. Franklin Benjamin Richards than anything at this mm -hmm. point. And, you know, as John alluded to, when she wakes up and sees Nightcrawler there, at this point in their development, Nightcrawler is used to her being very creeped out by his appearance. And the first thing she does is give him a great big hug because he's alive. Right. And they've had 30 years of history together. And he's like, what? Yeah. And she immediately steps forward and everyone sees, yeah, the way she's carrying herself, this is not, you know, they believe probably about 99% sure that, yes, what she's telling is the truth. They do bring her to Professor X to confirm that, though. And she's telling the history of how they're just, you know, a couple of days away from the murder of presidential candidate Robert Kelly, who actually is murdered in the first X-Men film. Yeah, this is a this is a 1980 story. So it's a presidential election year. And it's, it's hitting stands before the actual election. But in the fictional universe, Senator Kelly is up for presidential. You know, he is a candidate and he's a leading candidate. And in her history, he gets killed by the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And that sets off a huge chain of events. Oh, yes. So she's pulling the X-Men together to prevent that assassination of an anti-mutant hysteric senator. Now, cut again to the future where the X-Men have been identified by Sentinels and they're fighting back and forth. We see it is a challenge for them, but they're revealed. And the Sentinels are out in significant numbers. So then we cut from here back to Halloween 1980 in Washington, D.C., as Raven Darkholm, a.k.a. Mystique, comes in with what I believe is their first introduction to her, Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Mystique has appeared before in the last few issues of Ms. Marvel as Raven Darkholm. But Chris Claremont has taken that character from his, the canceled Ms. Marvel book and brought it over here to Uncanny X-Men. Yeah, along with Destiny. And Mystique and Destiny's relationship is slightly touched on here. It's going to be a long time before editorial is comfortable enough to reveal the true nature of their relationship. But they are lovers. We've got Avalanche and Pyro in what I believe are their first appearances. Mm -hmm. And The Blob, who has been around for a long time, and he's the holdover from the original Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And he sort of holds it over his head at one point whenever he's trying to assert his awesomeness. He's like, um, he says, I was part of the original Brotherhood. I worked for Magneto, yeah, as, as the Brotherhood often does. as a bit of bickering, and so he's trying to assert his own supremacy. Yeah, and I do like the fact that, you know, when it's Blob, Pyro, and Avalanche all bickering, one command for Mystique, she's got the command presence. She does pull it together. Now we cut from here to Professor Xavier Moira McTaggart and Senator Kelly at Mutant Hearings. 
and all of their lives are in jeopardy. In the original history, they didn't make it through. And we even see Warren Worthington, who's outed as a mutant at this point. The world at large does know that he's Angel. He is at the trial, but before anything else can really happen, the Brotherhood attack being led by Avalanche. And the X-Men have come here already anyway, because like you said earlier, they're, they're bringing Kate to Xavier and to the hearing. So it's kind of a two birds of one stone part of the mission here, because they want to verify her story with Charles, but they also want to do what she says they're supposed to do, i.e. save Cinder Kelly. So they're here to... Essentially prevent Kate's future from existing. Right. And although the other people on the team can only take Kate's word for it, Xavier actually looks inside her mind and is boggled by what he sees. Now, there is one panel where we see Warren Worthington standing there and a couple of the news guys, one's holding a camera. He looks over at his friend and says, tell Lois to try for an interview, which I always, always, always love when Clark and Lois are covering Marvel news events. Oh, yeah. Or when they bump into Thor in a hallway. <laughs> All right. So that's it for issue 141. Yeah, the Brotherhood has attacked, and they and the X-Men face off, and next issue, time out of mind. And so 142, like we said, the official The Uncanny X-Men, 142, this issue, everybody dies! And we get a brief recap over what's going on with the fact that Kitty Pride has 13-and-a-half-year-old body, but 43-and-a-half-year-old mind, and we get a great little two-page spread of the, of the Brotherhood and the X-Men facing off. But basically. This is largely a fight issue, and as Claremont issues go, it's pretty heavily narrated and pretty dialogue-heavy, but not in a everybody-has-to-say-something-so-please-just-give-everyone-a-speech-balloon way. In a, it, It's all you know, heavily narrated and heavily dialogued in a storytelling way. It is. There's even plot points set up in this dialogue that can last for a long time, but we'll get to that when we reach those pages. Okay. I don't know that I have a whole lot to say about the details of the fighting, there is some conflict. Um, Charles and Moira are whisked away from the scene of battle by a policewoman who turns out to be Mystique in disguise, and she gasses them and knocks them out. She has some sort of device with her, a damper field, to keep Xavier from detecting that she was not really a policewoman. And then we get some flashbacks and recap of the first issue. And there's one panel here that was that's a, kind of a repeat from the first issue panel that has Rachel cradling Kate's head in her lap. And I like that that visual was carried over into the film with Kate putting her hands on Wolverine's head. Yeah, they did definitely take some liberties in the film. I get the the lack of including of Rachel Summers. Although, as you pointed out, they don't tell you who Rachel Summers really is at this point. They could have just had a redheaded mutant named Rachel and run with it. Mm -hmm. But... Yeah, Wolverine is essentially the de facto star of the new movies, so of course he's the one that goes back in time, and it seems like, well, here's how we give Shadowcat a prominent role, since she lost that prominent role that she had previously. And I was kind of sad about that, because I'm a big fan of, of the actress who played Kitty in X-Men The Last Stand, and in Days of Future Past. Yeah, Ellen Page, she is amazingly awesome. She doesn't do very many films much anymore, but I like what she's done. Anyway, so when she was cast as Kitty, I was like, oh, if they ever did Days of Future Past, she's going to be great. And, of course, things went a different direction. But that's okay. Yeah. Listeners may have already heard more about that if they listen to my Silver Screen Superheroes podcast, because that was discussed in 2015. Yay, way back then. <laughs> yeah. To, to pull the curtain back a little bit for the listeners, this is being recorded after the X3 The Last Stand podcast was released and before the X-Men Origins Wolverine podcast was recorded and released. In other words, a hell of a long time ago. 
Um, <laughs> we cut to the future. The X-Men have managed to get away from the Sentinels and they're hiding, but they have to go on the offensive because they don't really have much choice. And just to give a little bit more background, just uh, I think we might have skirted over it a little bit. One of the reasons that they're doing this, that the future X-Men are doing this particular move at this particular time is because the Sentinels have pretty much conquered America and they're about to start facing the rest of the world. And the rest of the world is, takes this as an act of war and they're going to launch bombs. And they're, they're, the, the X-Men are looking at World War III, the entire world may die, that sort of thing. So if they don't resolve this issue now, basically the future of humankind is at stake. So that's why they're doing something so crazy and scientifically impossible as sending someone's brain back in time into their younger body. Yeah. So they're on the offensive. They, uh, Kate Pride's body is unconscious while 13-year-old Kitty's brain is in it. So they're carrying her around and trying to keep her safe from the Sentinels. But Storm attacks Sentinels. Wolverine leads Storm and Colossus down into a building. It is the Baxter building, the old HQ of the Fantastic Four. And yes. they're, they're right down to using the, the belt buckles to get through the elevators. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Okay, so they're in the Baxter building. While they're in the elevator, we cut back to Washington, 1980. More fighting. <laughs> Lots of fighting. Blob is, is having his way with Colossus, knocks him right out of the building, and then jumps out to land on him. But Colossus dodges out of the way at the last second. Pyro is taking the military's flamethrowers and turning them into demon, giant fire demons. So the, the, the X-Men are both having to protect themselves and also protect the, I was going to say civilians, but they're not civilians, they're military, but they're non-super military from all the super antics of the mutants. A disguised mystique who looks like Nightcrawler attacks Nightcrawler. Wolverine is about to jump in with his claws and he and Storm have a bit of an argument where she says, Wolverine, sheathe your claws. Not a chance. We're in the middle of a fight, Storm. I'm in no mood for a debate. Sheathe them or use them on me. I am leader of the X-Men. Well, that is so you will use your claws when I command and no other time. I wouldn't take that from Cyclops. You will take it from me. Because Cyclops has just recently left the team and she is now the leader. And she points out that he has all these other abilities. The claws should only come out as a last extreme resort. And so he's grumblingly agrees and puts his claws away. He and Colossus get the great idea, or Colossus gets the great idea, to use a girder and shove it underneath Blob and using Wolverine as a fulcrum because he has an unbreakable skeleton. Um, they just want to, like... Yeah, launch Blob in the air. Yeah. The way they do it, though, or at least the way it looks when they're drawn, is they've put the Wolverine fulcrum in the very, very wrong position for that lever to have the effect they want it to have. Yeah, this is the one where the, the Blob has the advantage. Yeah. Rather than Colossus. I mean, you're the physics side. My understanding is that the the longer end of the of the of the um, fulcrum, what's the cross beam on the fulcrum called? You get greater torque when you are a further distance from the fulcrum. Right. So your energy on the on the far end of the fulcrum is being channeled and concentrated down into the shorter end of the of the um, cross beam, and they're doing it the opposite way on this but anyways yeah it's, it's drawn comics, here so like the, the distance to the blob is about six or seven times longer than the distance <laughs> from wolverine to colossus which means it's only like one sixth or one seventh of colossus's strength right but anyways they do you know it's comics so it works they launch him into the air and then colossus like punches him in the groin while he's falling through the sky and 
And they take him out that way. Um, Storm... And punching him into Avalanche to take two of them out at once, actually. Oh, okay, good. Storm starts putting out the fire demons with her rain powers. Nightcrawler and Mystique continue to fight, but Mystique changes back into herself. And Nightcrawler realizes they have a very similar appearance. And he's wondering what's going on with that. And she's like, ask your mom. (laughs) Yeah. And this is the part I mentioned that's going to lead to to plot points. Because not only does she know that he is Kurt Wagner and calls that out. But when she says, ask your mother, she says, ask your mother, Margalee Sardos. So it's very clear that she's quite familiar with Nightcrawler's family. And we have just met Margalee Sardos in the X-Men at this point, because they just had an annual that explored Nightcrawler's background, where he's been actually secretly dating his sister and didn't realize it. But so, you know, in Claremontian fashion, little plot seeds are getting dropped. More fighting, and we go back to the future. Huh, back to the future. It's 2013. The Small group of X-Men, Wolverine, Colossus, and Storm have gotten to an upper level of the Baxter building. They do a fastball special to launch Wolverine toward a Sentinel, and the Sentinel turns around and blasts Wolverine with his hand and basically incinerates all the flesh off of his metal skeleton. He did a uh, comment in passing recently about how he was almost a cyborg, and it's kind of weird because he's not really a cyborg, and yet if you look at his skeleton here, it does look very Terminator-ish. And so you can kind of see where he might consider himself almost a cyborg because he is basically metal with flesh on it. Storm gets an arrow in her back. Colossus cries out over her death. We cut down to Rachel, who's still huddling in a corner, hiding from the world with Kate Pride's unconscious form in her arms. And she is mentally feeling all of her friends die. She sits there weeping. And we cut back to the present day for, I believe, the last time. Kitty Pride has found her way into the office where Destiny is about to shoot Senator Kelly with a crossbow bolt. She goes, she phases through Destiny and uses her solidified arm to knock the crossbolt's aim out of the way. Robert Kelly's life has been preserved, and so immediately Kitty Pride's minds switch. She's not sure what's going on because she doesn't know anything since the danger room whenever the first switch happened. Bad guys all get carried away, except for Mystique, who has once again disguised herself as her her secret identity of working for the government, and the X-Men fly back home. Kitty asks about her future self, but Xavier says that there's not really any need to know your own future, and Storm's like, yeah, if I knew my future, I'd spend all my life trying to change it. And we get one last scene that serves both as an epilogue to this story and a seed for future events, where the assassination attempt on Robert Kelly has served to have the exact same effect on him that his assassination attempt was going to have on others, which is to revive the Sentinel program with Project Wide Awake, and now Henry Peter Gyrick is going to be put in charge of that. And so, yes, many, many dark events are going into the future from this series. But that's that's the plot synopsis of the story. What did What did you think of it? What are your thoughts on the story? This is one that I've actually enjoyed every time I've read it, and that's been more than once. When I first got back into comics as the movies were hitting, I was picking up all the essentials. So I first read this in black and white as part of the essential Uncanny X-Men line. And then I have reread it since then doing, you know, probably when I was doing similar X-Men read-throughs to what you're doing. And sometimes I just go back to read it because it's a good story. I read it for the second time when the movie came out. Uh, before when the movie was almost out, I went ahead and just reread it just for the kicks. I read it then as well. I'm not sure if that was the second time or probably more like the sixth or seventh time. 
I think that my this is I think this is my third time to read it was for this podcast. First time was in a previous X Men read through attempt that never got past issue 150. So I'm, I'm I'm well on my way to passing myself previously my previous attempts. But it is so good and the imagery and the names and the ideas permeate so much of X-Men's future that I was already familiar with the concepts. I just never read this story. Anyone who grew up on the 90s X-Men cartoon already knows Sentinels. They know the dark future. They know Senator Robert Kelly. He was in the first X-Men film also, so you know him from there. This is a seminal story for the X-Men. So even though I hadn't read it until a few years, a handful of years ago, I, I kind of knew it already. Mm-hmm. Actually, I knew it in junior high and the references to it because my classmates kept comparing it to a new warrior story that I really enjoyed, but that's a subject for another podcast. <laughs> but again, it's coming into that because you get that jump ahead to a dark future, which has permeated so much of X-Men from this point forward. And this particular future is is really important to X-Men, not just the idea of going to the future, but this particular future becomes really important to X-Men continuity. Yeah, this is where Rachel Summers comes from, who becomes a major member of Excalibur. This is the first story of this style that essentially set up the futures that we see for Cable as a grown man, for Bishop, for a number of the 1990s X-Men characters. How many characters from the 90s X-Men existed because they came back from horrible dystopian futures? That they were trying Similar to, to this one. Yeah, if you go back to Messiah Complex and Messiah War, that entire, there's a, a trilogy of stories there. The initial conflict was based on the first mutant in a long time, which was important enough to the future that her survival is what created Bishop's horrible future, and her death is what created Cable's horrible future. So they were, X-Men are fighting amongst themselves about whether or not this first mutant in a long time should live or die. I mean, the, the person of Hope Summers. Like, right. I mean, at this point, we'd already seen the Squadron Supreme, or the Squadron Sinister, I should say, show up in Avengers comics. Mm-hmm. But that that originally started as a way for Marvel and DC to cross over with the Justice League showing up in Avengers and Avengers showing up in Justice League. The legal arguments fell through on that, so they couldn't use the actual characters. So they were, both companies just transformed the teams into very similar characters. Right. So you have Hyperion instead of Superman and Nighthawk instead of Batman, but they're basically, it's... The Squadron Sinister slash Supreme is the Justice League in the Marvel Universe. Yeah, it's if you read the contemporary Justice League comics when that issue came out, it's very, very easy to do that one-to-one matchup Yeah, of which characters filling in for which. So that was the closest thing that we'd had to a, a major crossover between alternate realities or alternate timelines and futures. This is the first one that really stuck and just permeated everything. When we do see Squadron Supreme later on, for the most part, they're even in their own universe. The 12-issue Mark Grunewald series really requires them to be the only superpowered heroes in their universe to work. Mm-hmm. But that story doesn't work in a universe that has the Avengers. But So, yeah, in terms of the way X-Men stories were told in particular, I mean, this and the long story arc that preceded it, there's a very clear before and after in X-Men history. And this is one of the ones that gets a lot of callbacks. Right. I don't know. Yeah, Senator Kelly's rise to power had been set up in previous issues but really there's you could you could start in with this story and begin a new reading of the x-men and not that you wouldn't have to know nothing from previously but it is kind of you know a new chapter so so much of 80s and i guess like you said the 90s 
And 90s X-Men has so much world hopping and so much future hopping and so much of that just crazy storytelling that would not exist without this story. Oh yeah, how many pages of the official Marvel handbook to Ultimate or to Alternate Universes came out of 1990s X-Men? <laughs> I think the need to give all these different Earths a unique identity is because is because of that. I like a lot of the visuals from this. The covers are both iconic. The cover of the first installment has gray-haired Wolverine and yeah, an adult Kitty Pride. We don't know that it's she, it's just you know, gray-haired Wolverine and some woman in a searchlight with behind them a giant poster picturing all of the X-Men with labels over their faces saying apprehended or slain. And it's hugely iconic. It's been referenced and homaged and spoofed umpteen times. And then the second issue has the scene of Wolverine getting, you know, blasted to smithereens by a sentinel on the cover. And the sentinel has Storm in his other hand. He's about to crush her. And, and with the caption, everybody dies, it looks like Wolverine is dying. And yeah, in the future, Wolverine is dying. So that actually is the death of Wolverine on the cover long before Six Months to Die ever happened. So the visuals of the story are very important. The idea of Kate Pride's mind going from the future into the past is something that's not really done with time travel anymore. I think because Back to the Future and the Terminator films have so ingrained our minds of how time travel is quote-unquote supposed to work. But this is before either one of those stories. And so the, the time travel is, you know, he's making up his own rules. Yeah, which is good because there's, this is a mechanism of time travel that as a, a, a physics geek really bothers me because there's, there's no apparent mechanism here whatsoever that justifies the, the time swap. It's powerful telepath swaps your minds at two different points in time, but we haven't seen anything that says a, a telepath has the ability to pick and choose which moments in time are being used. Right. It, it's kind of a conceit of the storytelling. We just have to assume that Rachel and they have found a way to do this. Yeah, it's easy to to put together a retcon, given that Rachel is married to Franklin Richards, and given how much power he has since developed, right? We're talking about the guy who created the Heroes Reborn universe and then pulled them back. He would have had the power to do this on his own, but then he would have had the power to change a lot of things on his own. So we can't retcon that in this alternate future, he has enough of that power to pitch in with Rachel and help her pull this off. Mm-hmm. Another element of the future is Kate's and Colossus's relationship, which, again, this story is placed very early in Kitty Pride's history with the X-Men. She was introduced in 129. She joins the team on the last page of 138. This is 141 and 2. So she has had two monthlies and an annual to be involved with the team. And that's just not very much time. But... From the first, go, you know, from from day one, we have seen hints of a crush that on Cyclops, on um, Cyclops, <laughs> a crush on Colossus, and it's been subtle. It's not like, oh my gosh, the thirteen-year-old has a crush on Colossus. But in this issue, you know, they confirm their love for each other, and she says, "I've loved you from the first day I met you." And so, in a trope, I, I, I think this has probably become a trope of storytelling occasionally since then, or maybe from before then. We get. uh future historical development of a relationship teased by seeing how it ends up. I'm thinking of Lightning Lad and Saturn Girl as having a similar situation where we see them as adults married long before any hint of their relationship actually happens in the comics. Yeah. I mean, here, the the closest thing that we have to a hint is that when the 13-year-old girl comes downstairs and sees the X-Men for the first time, in 
the way the adjective she comes up to describe them and label them before they're introduced is that Colossus is the hunky one. <laughs> he is though. He's he's a he's a strapping specimen of Russian manhood right there. Yeah, he would he'd be intimidating even if he couldn't turn into organic steel. Although I think Kitty would be disappointed if she went to the Ultimate Universe. Yeah. <laughs> But a lot of X-Men fans are disappointed when they go to the Ultimate Universe. I'm not. I'm a fan of Ultimate X-Men. But that might be because I'm not as familiar with regular X-Men as I want to be. Yeah. Ultimate Colossus and Kitty Pride would have a very different relationship. They might still be friends if, you know, she caught him before his druggy days. But they wouldn't be the same kind of friends. Yeah. Yeah, that's the, the Ultimate Universe is more diverse than the mainstream. But This is true. Yeah, Kitty's Ultimate Kitty Pride went down a very different path as well. Oh, yeah, that's right, because she's, yeah. But anyways, we shouldn't tangent too much. So, yeah, very solid story, lots of good stuff that influences X-Men for some time to come. Yeah, I, I think still to this day, given that, as we revealed, this is being recorded during Marvel's Secret Wars event, there's one of the miniseries revising one of the, the alternate universes is based on this story. So I don't know if or when this will stop influencing at least the X-Men portion of the continuity. Right, and really, it shouldn't. No, yeah, this it's, one, as I said, if you were to pull two out, there's this week's and there's next week's. Right. Be my two big X-Men picks. So beyond that, there's, you know, a section of this podcast that I have shamelessly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast that we should all be listening to. We want to look for any messages, morals, or meanings, or any social commentary that we can pull out of these issues. And I don't know what there is to a large degree, aside from, you know, it's almost cliche, but sometimes the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You know, normally, the X-Men would be opposed to Senator Kelly's actions, you know, not in to the degree of supporting his assassination. But certainly, if there was a legal and ethical way to keep this anti-mutant individual from getting elected, I think they would work towards that. Probably through, you know, Charles Xavier showing up at the hearing that he's at right here and now in this story. But aside from that piece, and, you know, aside from the, the mechanisms, one of the things we didn't really discuss that I liked about the way Mystique was running this Brotherhood the big violent confrontation was the blind and the distraction. The real plan was to get Senator Kelly to run into hiding where Destiny would already be waiting and take him out. Oh, yeah. That's some clever planning on her part. Yeah, and that's it's a very different style of approach than what we've typically seen in Marvel villains up to this point. They're usually, you know, the big loud splash that is the plan. Right. But this it's is a lot more subtle. Though. Yeah. And it's a nice complement to a power set where she's working, used to working in the, the subtle and the subterfuge and behind the scenes. So we're getting a very different villain out of this, and she has probably come closer to accomplishing her goals than a lot of the others have. Right? They, the only reason the X-Men pulled this off is because of a very desperate, this or end of the world kind of gamble from the future kitty. Mm -hmm. So I, I did like that piece as well. Uh, John, did you see anything else in here? Well, this is, you know, one of the great things about X-Men is how often it can be used for cultural metaphor uh, with outcasts of various types and hues being stand-ins, or rather the X-Men being stand-ins for outcasts. And this is one of the first places where that becomes explicit. You know, we have very direct, very blatant references to elements of our, you know, human history that are not pretty, i.e. concentration camps and registration of individuals for no other reason than the fact that they're different. And so the X-Men are standing in for that, and that is that's one of the the better aspects of X-Men as a concept is just their ability to be used as a metaphor for other outcast peoples. So that comes into play here. But that's that's more X-Men as a whole, and this is just a really good example of it. 
As far as the actual story here, I don't know. I'm kind of at a loss. It is a really, really good story. But as far as like a moral or message or meaning, I mean, they have the, they have the Hail Mary play of sending Kitty back in time. But I'm kind of at a loss for any other like, you know, more deep literary meanings for it. Yeah, this one isn't about the social commentary so much aside from reminding us that mankind as a whole has some pretty ugly elements in its history. And they shouldn't be forgotten or else they may return. Right. And I think that's that's about it. So I guess, you know, one other thing I wanted to pull out from this that I meant to, that I thought about while we were synopsizing that I wanted to come back to. It's not made explicit here, but if my understanding of X-Men history is correct, they don't realize it, but the future has not been changed. Rachel is still in the future. That's there's still a terrible future and like I said in the synopsis, Senator Kelly's new plan is to go forward with the kinds of ideas that other government officials were going to go forward with in the wake of his assassination. And so the persecution of mutants could still very well lead to the future. And I believe the next time we see Rachel, she's trying to figure out how to make her future, you know, how to change her future again, because it didn't work. Not in the way she wanted. This is, it's actually pretty consistent with the way uh, time travel has been covered in the Fantastic Four and Marvel in general. You don't so much change futures as create new alternate future timelines. So the old future still exists, but a new timeline can branch off of this one. I, the comment on Rachel and Miles explained the X-Men when they covered these issues that said that, you know, there's something along the lines of three different alternate futures to the days of future past future have now been created. So that timeline has been split three times following the events of these stories in what would take place after the scenes that we see in that timeline in this story. Yeah, the last time we see the future in this story is before the transition, whenever Rachel is cradling Kitty Pride's head, you know, in her lap. We don't actually see the result of the of all of this on the future until much later. Yeah, much later. But anyways, that's not as so much more uh, morals and messages as just commentary on the story that I meant I meant to bring up earlier. But yeah, good stuff. It is, and I think I mean that's probably why it landed as high in this countdown as it did. It's just. It's a very good story dealing with one of Marvel's most popular franchises that has had a pretty significant impact on continuity in this series from that point forward. Mm-hmm. You know, it did take a few years before they came back to it, but once they came back to it, they've never really gone away from it. Right. And so much of, so much of the X-Men concept stems out of this, like we talked about. Oh, yeah. This is not your Neil Adams X-Men anymore. <laughs> no, no, it's not. Not that that would be a bad thing. It just, you know, isn't. Yeah, it's. I enjoy the Neil Adams X-Men, but it's kind of hard to bring that that state back. So, did you have any closing thoughts? Nope. If you have not read this and you have seen the movie, that's not good enough. I mean, the movie is good. I like the movie, but you need to read the actual issue. Yeah, the movie uses this as a launching point to tell its own story. Right, and I would say it's a pretty decent adaptation of the ideas of this story. But it is a different story told differently, mainly because, as we said earlier, the the X-Men films are not so much X-Men films as they are Wolverine films with X-Men in them. And so the X-Men Days of Future Past is a Wolverine film instead of a Kitty Pride story. And it's it's just done very, very differently. Um, one of the big differences is that this Mystique wears clothes. Well, does she? She gives the appearance that she does, but the clothes change with her. Yeah, okay. So she may not actually be wearing clothes, but... When she's blue, she's not she's not walking around with naked blue like 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 Jennifer. Yeah, she gives, she puts on the effect the affectation of clothes. Right to make all of the insecure humans feel okay about themselves. 
Yeah. All right. So uh, for those of you who are reading along at home, you may have guessed by now. Next week, John is coming back and we are going to discuss the Dark Phoenix saga, which originally ran through issues 129 through 138 of this series. At least one issue has been reprinted in a number of places here. The whole story can be found in a number of places as well. But you can find bits and pieces of this reprinted in 100 Greatest Marvels of All Time, number 8. Classic X-Men, 35 to 44, collects it all. Essential Dazzler, volume 1, has one issue. Essential X-Men, volume 2, collects it all. Greatest Battles of the X-Men collects an issue. Marvel Collectible Classic X-Men, number 3, collects an issue. Marvel Masterworks Uncanny X-Men, volumes 4 and 5 combined, reprint the whole thing. Marvel Visionaries Chris Claremont reprints portions of it. Phoenix number 1 from 1984 reprints portions. Uncanny X-Men Omnibus Hardcover reprints it all. Uncanny X-Men Trade Paperback from 1984 reprints it all. Oddly, the X-Men Days of Future Past Trade Paperback includes portions of the story. X-Men Road Tripping, the trade paperback from 1999, collects portions of the story. You can also get the whole run on Comixology, on the Gatecorp 40 Years of the X-Men DVD-ROM, and on Marvel Digital Unlimited. Feel free to check out any of John's shows. And John, we haven't talked about them this week, so why don't you just run through some of the ones that you do and... We'll drop in a plug after the credits. Well, I podcast with my daughter, and we talk about Avengers comics, and that is at the Avengers Inspirations podcast. Uh, we're doing this far enough in advance from release date, but I'm not sure if my if my plans to revive some of my other past projects are going to come to light or not. Uh, so I'm not going to you know lie to you and say that they're out there if they're not. But I do have other podcasts I've done in the past that are they're worth checking out: Amazing Spider-Man Classics, and New Fifty Two Adventures of Superman, and Golden Age Superman. And yeah, that's it. So Avengers Inspirations is the, oh, the Star Wars saga cast. That's the way I'm done. But the Avengers Inspirations show is one that I, that I, uh, definitely, you know, recommend, you know, cause I'm not biased in that at all. And that can be found at the complete Marvel reading order website under the podcasts tab. Okay. Yeah, so feel free to rate this show and any other shows that you listen to on iTunes or on Stitcher. You can also join the discussion about this in our Facebook forum. And I do appreciate honest feedback, positive or negative, for any of my podcasts. If you have a friend who you think would enjoy listening to the show, please send them a link. Ask them to give it a shot. They're getting pretty close to being able to get the complete package of all 75 stories. And they can pick and choose which ones they want to listen to. We're almost there. And finally, thank you for listening. Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man, the Incredible Hulk, the Mighty Thor, the Captain America. Wow, being dramatic there, aren't we? Do do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world. Uh-huh. 
as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the anime before we had a full film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. He's not looking to Bender, but he's there. Oh, okay. So um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad? Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you!